true, you know, the church of Jesus Christ is like nothing else on earth. And there really is nothing else that we can compare it to. In fact, I was thinking the other day, back over the past 20 years or so of pastoral ministry, just considering the five local churches that I've worked for personally over that period of time, including this one. In those five churches alone, over just the past two decades, I can, as a first-hand witness, point to thousands and thousands of people who are hungry, who are fed by those churches. Our church in Fairbanks alone helps provide groceries for about a couple dozen families every week. So you can do that math on your own. The number of people fed over 20 years from that one church is staggering, not to mention the food programs and all of the other four churches as well. I can point to thousands of people who were provided clothing and uh, personal goods, blankets, furniture, household items, vehicles, housing over the past 20 years directly from those five churches. Marriages, dozens of them in each church uh, over two decades that were on the brink of disaster, healed and restored through the ministry of just those five churches. Really innumerable physical needs met provisions given in just about every form that you can think of over 20 years to many thousands of people in need. And then when you get to the spiritual needs met, the numbers skyrocket from there. People delivered and healed and dedicated and baptized and counseled. Relationships restored between people. Literally too many physical, spiritual, and emotional provisions to count just out of five churches over two decades. Not to mention many thousands of souls saved from eternal hell, brought into eternal life in Christ through those five churches. None of them mega churches, none of them with famous pastors or famous worship music, just five simple local churches filled with people working together, unified in Christ to fulfill his great commission. And if those numbers aren't astonishing enough, add in all of the other churches in America during that time. And then once that sinks in, add in all the churches around the world over the course of the entire history of the church, from, from house churches to mega churches and everything in between, and just try to get your head around the hundreds of millions of lives that have been eternally changed. How many people taken care of, provided for, looked after through the church of Jesus Christ. It really is mind-boggling to consider. And the fact is there's no other organization on earth, no, no entity, no government, no group that can even come close to the claims that the church can rightfully make. In the assemblies of God alone, uh, there are nearly 70 million members worldwide today. And that is by no means the largest uh, Christian denomination. So I just wanted to bring that up this morning. First of all, to say that the church is alive and well. And although we may well be entering into a new era, at least in this country, a new climate in our culture for the church, one that uh, certainly appears to be, at least to me, more hostile toward the body of Christ, the church isn't going anywhere. And we know that because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. God is sovereign. He's firmly in control. And so if Jesus said it, it's settled. The church isn't going anywhere. Of course, uh, we will assuredly experience difficulty along the way. It won't always be easy. Jesus promised us that as well. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So there's a personal guarantee Right? That life for the church won't always be easy, but we don't fret 
We don't panic because he followed that statement up with, but take heart. I've overcome the world, John 16, 33. So we have this all-powerful, sovereign God who's looking after us and is greater than any trouble that we may face. And James, the brother of Jesus, whose letter we've been working our way through over the past several weeks, understood this dynamic for the church in the first century because they were facing persecution and abuse and oppression on a scale that we can't even grasp today. We have no idea what that must have been like. And so as an elder, a pastor in the church at Jerusalem, James writes this letter to these Jewish Christians in the churches who were scattered all around outside of Palestine, all around the ancient Mediterranean world. And they were facing this unbelievable persecution and poverty. And he writes this letter to remind them that in the midst of their struggles and their difficulties, they have the strength and power in Christ to withstand anything that the world can throw at them as long as they stay unified in Christ. In fact, the only true threat that they face. The only force in this world that can take them out of God's will is them. There is no evil. There's no power of darkness. There are no circumstances or situations, no other person that can take them outside of God's perfect will. And yet James points out that many of them are indeed living far outside of God's will. The reason, he says, is because they've become so focused on themselves in the midst of their hardship. They've allowed the the cares of this world to take their focus off of Christ and off of each other and onto their own selfish needs and desires. They were becoming very individualistic and very independent of one another. And so James's message to the church then couldn't be any more timely for the church now. Because in our culture today, specifically in America, we champion individualism and independence which can foster a a lot of narcissism, selfishness, and and pride. And so James is addressing these issues within the church in this last portion of chapter 4. And he points out the alternatives to individualism and independence that Christ followers are to live by. He says, instead of focusing on individualism, we should be focused on community within the church, the body of Christ. And rather than championing independence, we should recognize and celebrate our radical dependence on Christ and on each other as members of his church, okay? But focusing on community and dependence upon that community are not typically attitudes that our culture promotes or affirms today. And that's okay for believers because we should be living counter to the culture anyway. If you remember from last week, 1 John 3, 1 says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Okay, the the world outside of the church is not going to recognize us when we're truly following Jesus Christ. Why? Because they don't recognize him. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to live differently and love differently to act according to God's word, not according to the current trends in pop culture. Our entire worldview is to be filtered through the lens of scripture, which means that our ideals will naturally be different than those of the world. And chief among them should be a focus on the community of faith, the people of God as a community and our total dependence upon God and our brothers and sisters in that community. 
That is the picture that James paints for us in these last seven verses of chapter four, where we'll pick up where we left off last week. It's the the juxtaposition between worldly ideals of individualism and independence within secular culture and the ideals of scripture about community and and dependence that should be evident within the church. And this is precisely why James is so harsh through so much of his letter because he desperately loves God's people and he wants the church to flourish in unity but instead they're tearing the church apart from within because instead of living and acting according to the ideals of Christ in the church they're living and acting according to the ideals of the culture around them. And don't forget, these were Jewish Christian churches outside of Palestine. They were living in very harsh and hostile environments toward the church. And so they were under tremendous pressure from the culture around them. And they were caving to that pressure. And so rather than reflecting the image of Christ, they were simply becoming a reflection, a mirror image of the secular culture of the cities that they were in. Okay, and therein lies the heart of the matter. For the church then and for the church now. I, I, think if, I think if we're honest with ourselves today, we can look at some elements, unfortunately, of the American church and hardly find any difference between those who profess to be believers in Christ and those who want nothing to do with Christ. When we act the same and talk the same and fear the same, when we doubt the same and fight the same and hate the same, When we love superficially and live unfaithfully and treat one another the same as the rest of the world does, the church then becomes almost indistinguishable from the culture around it. You understand? I'm not talking about how we look and how we dress and current trends. I'm talking about how we live our lives. This is what was happening in the church in James's letter. And I believe it shines a spotlight on the fact that there is a difference between simply believing in Jesus and following Jesus which we talk about here a lot and which James is addressing in this letter. We see him repeatedly bring up the difference between the faith that these church members claim to have and the lack of corresponding works or fruit in their lives. In other words, the way they were living didn't line up with what they claimed to believe. And by the way, people often try to point out the differences between James's writings and Paul's writings in order to discredit James. In fact, uh, Martin Luther did that. He wanted to pitch the book of James right out of the Bible. But in reality, the teaching and doctrine between those two dovetailed perfectly. In James 1.22, James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Romans 2.13, Paul said, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And this theme runs all through James's letter. John 9, 4, just before putting his faith to work by healing the blind man, Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Okay, Peter echoes this teaching in 1 Peter 2, as does John in 1 John 3. They're all in agreement and all in line with the teachings of Christ. And so with that in mind, as we continue our sermon series today, James the Just, with a message entitled Strength in Numbers, we're going to examine these opposing ideals of individualism and independence that were creeping their way into the church to the scriptural ideals of community and dependence that were hallmarks of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the earliest iterations of the New Testament church, certainly that we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 and other places, which is what James is trying to bring the church back to. Okay, And as we go, we should ask ourselves, 
When people in the world look into this church, what do they see? Are we a mirror image of the culture around us or do we look different? Do we, do we act differently? Do we love differently? Do we live differently? Okay, let's turn there then to James chapter 4 and we'll start with verses 11 and 12. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In these two verses, James points out the stark contrast and absurdity, really, between the selfish and abusive interests of the individual that's happening within the context of the church and the brotherhood that is supposed to exist within the church community. He's talking about individualism versus community. Notice how many times in these two verses, James points out that they're brothers and neighbors. He's emphasizing the community that they're a part of. In fact, right from the beginning of verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He didn't have to throw in that last bit, but he did, right? He could have just said, do not speak evil against one another and left it at that. But he reminds them that they're brothers. And then he brings it up two more times. And then he ends verse 12 by referring to them as neighbors. Nowhere does he talk about their individual rights. He just keeps directing their attention back to the fact that they belong to something bigger than themselves. Something transcendent of their individual desires and interests. Right? The, the Old Testament focuses prophetically on the coming of Christ. The New Testament Gospels focus on the life of Christ. And everything after that focuses on the body of Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. But once he instituted the church and ascended to heaven, everything after that was directed to and through the church. The, the teachings of the New Testament overwhelmingly speak to the church. They're directed to the body, the community of believers. Even when individual attributes and gifts are discussed, it's always in the context of how those individual attributes or giftings can be used to benefit or build up the church. So even when the discussion in scripture turns to the individual, the focus is still on the church. It's on the community of believers. And yet I hear people often talking about American individualism as a reason for the success of this nation from its inception. And I understand uh, the concepts of personal liberty and individual resolve. I understand that well. And they were certainly driving factors for those who first came here. But when I read the history of this country, what I see were groups of people that came here together and they were unified under a common cause. And the first thing that they did when their boots hit the ground was they formed communities. Why? Because they understood that they would likely never make it without the support of the whole community together. In fact, the whole concept of individualism as a philosophy didn't take root in America, uh, in American thought until the late 1800s and early 1900s. In fact, the term individualism didn't even exist until 1820 in Europe, in France. Okay? So I get the idea of the strong individual that we champion in the formation of our nation. But what made America truly great from the beginning was not a random selection of people who were only concerned about themselves and what they wanted. What made America great were groups of people who united under common interest and together they formed these powerful communities that developed into a powerful nation. 
The truth is we make far too much of individualism in our culture today, which is not God's design for his people. If you look at the Hebrew culture that God created and instituted in the Old Testament, what you see is the community before the individual. You always see an emphasis on family and community over what we call rugged individualism. And yet Western society holds up the virtues of the individual over the community. It's the exact opposite of what we see in scripture. In the Old Testament, Hebraic culture was all about community by God's design. And in the New Testament, he instituted the church, the body, the community of believers by his design. And similar to some of our Christian culture today, instead of strengthening that community, that is the church, these believers that James was writing to were weakening the community because they were putting their individual desires before the needs of the body. And the primary way they were doing that was in their treatment and speech to one another. James says, you're speaking evil against one another. And he explains that there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to destroy, to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I want to pause for just a moment and, and as a side and mention something. This is one of those famous passages that gets mutilated by people a lot who like to take it out of context. Actually, they'll use it to support their own individualistic ideals, which is the exact opposite of how it was intended to be understood. Okay, the phrase speak evil against in the ancient Greek is the word kataleleo. It means to criticize or to slander or defame or denigrate. It's condemning language that they were using against each other in the church. And when you read these verses in context uh, of the rest of the letter up to this point, particularly chapter 3, James is clearly not referring to the very scriptural practice of holding one another accountable, which we'll look at in a moment. James is pointing out that these church members are tearing each other apart. They're criticizing and condemning one another. And he says, hey, stop it. Stop it. You have no right to condemn each other. That is not your place. There's only one who has that authority and he isn't in this room. So stop beating each other up. And yet there are a lot of people who like to co-opt the scriptures for their own selfish ends. And they'll take a verse or several different verses far out of context and they'll use them as a weapon to shut people down. I see it on social media all the time. I hear it in conversations. Judge not lest ye be judged. You ever hear somebody say that? Let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Get the plank out of your own eye. Who are you to judge your brother? I hear it all the time. And for people who don't like being under any kind of authority in their lives, people who don't want to have to answer to anyone but themselves, people who try to avoid community, these verses are their best friends. And they use them or misuse them to be more specific as a club to beat back anyone who tries to encourage them toward good works. I've seen more people beat over the head with these verses than any other. And when people do that, when they misuse verses like this, they're not trying to teach people about the truth of God's word. They're trying to shut people up. You can shut someone up in a hurry by quoting scripture to them because it's hard to argue with the Bible, right? And yet it is the very self-righteousness that they pretend to be confronting that they themselves are guilty of when they misuse these passages. When they, they try to come across as pious and knowledgeable by quoting scripture, but they're usually just trying to get someone to leave them alone so they can keep on living the way that they want to live, right? And here's the problem with that. God created us to live in community as members of the same body, the church, 
And a part of living in that family, as with any family, is being accountable to one another. All of the verses about judging that people misquote and, and address, uh, are addressing situations where believers were abusing one another. They were full of pride and trying to condemn each other. It's that catalaleo, this condemning language. And that is very different than the standard of accountability that we're all commanded to be a part of as followers of Christ. Paul talks about it in Galatians 6, 1 through 3. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So when we as brothers and sisters in Christ see one another acting outside of God's perfect will and with a broken and humble heart recognizing our own weaknesses and our own transgressions, we approach that brother or sister with compassion and love and complete humility and encourage them toward righteous behavior. That is a form of judging that we're all commanded to practice within the community of believers, holding one another accountable. You understand this isn't for the world. We're not to judge the world. We just show the world the love of Christ. But within the community of believers, this is appropriate judgment that we are to exercise. If you look at the famous Matthew 7 passage, where in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. If you continue reading that passage in verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then everybody stops right there. They don't, I don't ever hear anybody finish his sentence. He said, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, he doesn't say don't hold your brother accountable. He says make sure that you've dealt with your own sin. Make sure that your own heart is right with God first and then by all means, help your brother get the speck out of his eye. Jesus was a carpenter. I find this an interesting saying because he certainly knew what it felt like to have a speck in his eye. He was around sawdust all the time, right? If you've ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye, I certainly have. You know how hard it can be to do anything productive until you've gotten that speck out of your eye. It's amazing to me that such a tiny thing can absolutely stop you in your tracks. And of course, so often when you have something in your eye, you need someone to help you get it out, right? It, we're supposed to be getting the specks out of each other's eyes, but we can never help someone else with the speck in their eye, if we have a log in our own eye, right? If a speck keeps us from being able to get anything good accomplished, how much more debilitating is to have an entire log, you know, sticking out of your eye? So Jesus says, get the log out first. Clear up your own vision first so that you can see clearly to help your brother. And when you help someone, you ever help somebody get something out of their eye? When you help someone to get a speck out of their eye, how do you do that usually? Well, you don't walk up and punch him in the face right? Uh, you don't yell at them and command the speck to come out. No, you, you very carefully hold the eyelid open and you use some water and a, and a soft cloth and you very gently and carefully wipe away the speck. Remember, it sounds just like what Paul said. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We should absolutely be helping each other get the specks out of our eyes and it should always be done very carefully and very, very gently. 
The famous John 8 passage where Jesus stops the crowd that's trying to condemn a woman who was caught in adultery by saying, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then, and then everybody stops there. They don't read the rest of it. If you keep reading the passage after the crowd leaves, he says to her, has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't slander, doesn't denigrate her. He does, though, very lovingly and very gently tell her to stop sinning. Can, can you see the difference? 1 Corinthians 5.12, after describing all of this terrible sin that's happening within the church, Paul says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He's talking about accountability. We're supposed to hold one another accountable within the body of Christ. And that means humbly and compassionately and gently offering correction to others after we've dealt with our own sin. And also means being willing to receive correction from others when needed. And I'll just tell you that if, if the idea of bringing correction to someone else excites you a little bit, if you look forward to being the accountability police then you probably have no business correcting anyone because there's most likely a pride issue there that needs to be dealt with. But if you sense the prompting of the Holy Spirit to talk to someone about some issue of correction and you feel completely inadequate for the task and an overwhelming sense of compassion and love for that person and a righteous humiliation and even approaching them about that area of weakness in their life because you're well aware of your own imperfections, then you have a green light, scripturally, to do just that. You see, that's how community works. Individualism says, don't judge me. Don't you talk to me about my struggles. It's none of your business. You leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone. Community says, I love you too much to ignore that struggle in your life, and so I'm coming to you with a humble heart, open wide to listen and embrace and walk with you through that struggle until we both come out stronger on the other side. It's the opposite of judgmental attitudes that are condemning and condescending. It's the opposite of Kalileo. In fact, you cannot be right with God if you're not right with other people. When, when our attitude is condescending and condemning, we cannot be right with God. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, so far he's described our culture, and one who, who sows discord among the brothers. No, that's inside the church. You cannot be right with God if you're not right with other people. And that is the message that James is trying to get across to the church community. Okay, let's keep reading. We'll finish our text for this morning, verses 13 through 17. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. So James transitions here from talking about the, this pervasive spirit of individualism that is cr 
crept its way into the church to this errant idea in these last five verses that we're somehow in control of our own little world. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And in His sovereignty and divine providence, we exist for His good pleasure. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Okay, so we shouldn't confuse... Uh, the doctrine of free will with the idea that we're somehow in control. God has not abrogated his throne. He's firmly in control. And in that, he allows us to make choices and decisions that affect our lives. But even at that, it is only as he wills it to be. There's a doctrine called compatibilism uh, that explains how God's sovereignty and our free will coexist quite well together. And we've been over that before, so we won't do that again today. But this is the territory that James is wading into in these final verses of chapter 4. He's talking about independence versus dependence. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He says, your life is as frail as a mist. It seems a bit harsh at first, but James isn't trying to make us feel bad. He's trying to give us some perspective. It's not that we aren't worth much. On the contrary, Jesus died for us. We're worth everything to him. James is simply saying, don't think for a second that you're the one in control. Instead, understand that whatever life we live and whatever good we accomplish, it is only as the Lord wills it to be. In other words, we're completely and utterly and radically dependent upon Christ. And even beyond that, we're to reflect that relationship of Him, that dependency in our relationships with each other. Dependency is built into God's design for our lives with one another. We see that as a part of His design in marriage, between men and women, in families, between parents and children, in vocation, between employers and employees, in government, between leaders and citizens. In fact, Dependency permeates all of God's creation. All of nature is dependent on other aspects of nature. Look at the food chain outside, right? From the largest predators to the smallest insects, everything in nature is dependent upon other aspects of nature. Dependency is built in to the architecture of God's design from the beginning of creation. And it's not just dependency, it's, it's actually radical dependency on the sovereign grace of God. And we should willingly and openly embrace that. And yet in our culture, we champion the opposite. We celebrate independency and it's become so ingrained in our society and upbringing that we actually teach it to our children and our friends and our family. We, we were at a conference last week and a speaker was talking about some of this stuff. And he said, we teach our kids to become strong, self-sufficient, self-reliant, independent people before they ever consider getting married. He said, think about it. We more and more in our society tell people to wait. Wait till you're a little bit older. Get yourself established. Wait till you're a strong, self-reliant, self-sufficient, independent person before you ever think about getting married. And then when they do get married and they come into the church and we say, you guys need to learn how to depend on one another. 
right? You need to be able to be open about your weaknesses with one another. You have to learn how to rely on one another. This is 50-50 or 100-100 or whatever we call it. You guys got to learn how to work together and depend on one another. It's, it's patently ridiculous. We prepare people for this strong, independent, self-sufficient, self-reliant life. And then we slam them together with someone else and say, now undo all that and learn to do it a different way. There's a lot of problems that arise out of that when people get married. We see it in the church all the time through counseling because we've trained and conditioned and prepared our kids to become these strong, independent adults who only need to rely on themselves. And yet marriage is all about dependence. It's all about two very imperfect people with many weaknesses coming together and relying and learning to depend upon one another, which actually is the way God intended for it to be. He didn't plan for two perfect people to come together. I, I don't want to disappoint anyone, but, but Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, if you're looking, he ain't perfect. And if you're looking for that perfect standard, you're never going to end up being married. He intended for us to walk into relationship with one another with all of our brokenness and hurt and weakness and learn through dependency and growth in Christ to become strong individuals. That's how it's supposed to be. Used to be that people got married a lot younger. I personally think that's the better way. That's my opinion. My mom was 16 years old when she married my dad. He was a little bit older. My wife and I married young. Mary Beth was 19. When we got engaged, I was 22, and we married a year later. I'm not trying to say that it's a one-size-fits-all situation as far as when you marry. I'm not. But when you do marry young, you grow up together. For me and my wife, our entire adult lives, our opinions about life, our worldviews, our attitudes toward God and people and family and church, all those things that are being formed in those early years, we formed all those together because we grew up together having married just out of our teenage years. And honestly, we've always seen that as a great asset because we learned early on how to depend on one another. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that people who marry late in life can't have wonderful marriages. They can, and we know several that do. The point is that we mistakenly often view dependency as an impediment to a healthy and full life when actually dependency in our relationship to Christ and to our brothers and sisters in Christ is a great advantage because it is part of God's design for us, for all of creation from the very beginning. We're supposed to be dependent in our relationships and that should be the attitude according to James and everything that we do. We should have an understanding that our lives are totally dependent upon Christ and on each other. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And I know uh, uh, several people, particularly older Christians, <laughs> who preface just about every statement they make about the future with Lord willing. You ever hear people say that? They'll say, well, Lord willing, we'll see you tomorrow. And I'll say, hey, we'll see you on Wednesday. Lord willing, we'll see you at the Bible study on Wednesday. Lord willing, pastor, we'll be there to help at the workday. And I used to think that was really peculiar until I read this passage and I realized that is actually a very scriptural thing to say. And now some of you like to add, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. <laughs> I know that's what you were thinking. And I'm not sure if that's a reference to the flood in Noah's day or just a good old Southern idiom, a Southern saying. But either way, you're on the right track because it's a healthy reminder that all that we have 
and all that we are and everything that we do ultimately depends on Christ. And honestly, when you begin to view your life that way, it takes a lot of pressure off of yourself. I know Christians who don't want any help. They don't want prayer. They don't ask for advice. They don't want to allow anyone to serve them. And some of those folks really see that as admirable, as a a, a strength, an asset in their life. But the reality is that can be as much a form of pride and deficit as anything. When we don't think we need anyone else, that we can handle everything on our own. And James makes it clear, we are not self-made. Whether we recognize it or not, or whether we admit it or not, we're all completely dependent upon the sovereign grace of God for every breath and every heartbeat, every moment of our lives. There's a lot happening in our culture today. There's a lot happening in our country between the culture and the church and the government. And it appears, at least to me at this point, to have no immediate end in sight. The pressure legally is being dialed up on the church right now, which is not a surprise for God, and it shouldn't be for us. But there can be a tendency, and we're seeing it already with some Christians, to begin to fret and strain and become unsettled about the future as if somehow it all depends on us to determine the outcome of everything that is happening to the church. But look, it's not dependent upon us. It is wholly and completely dependent on God. And it seems to me that those who are the most up in arms about current events are some of the same folks who are the most concerned about their individual rights and their own independence, even over the community of believers. There almost seems to be a lack of willingness to allow themselves to be dependent upon God and and others in the body of Christ. But look, if things do get bad for Christians in this country, I don't want to be holed up alone in a secure facility somewhere. I want to be with you. I want to be with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my family, my tribe, my community. I want to be with you. And so I think James' warning to these first century Christians is a warning to us today. Whatever the Lord wills is going to happen. And no amount of hand-wringing on our part is going to change that. In fact, the most effective and productive thing that we can do is to recognize and embrace our dependence on Him and on each other in our church community. Because we may well see some truly hard times in our lifetime. We don't know. But it's certainly possible. And one of the reasons that God's designed for us is to be in community with one another is so that we have a support system in hard times so we can rely on other believers and support one another and encourage each other when times are tough. This is why we do what we do here at Upcountry Church. We provide for each other all the time. When there is need, we support each other. When there's discouragement, we intercede for each other. When there's uncertainty, we strengthen one another. When there's weakness, we restore each other. When there's failure, we lift others up when they fall down. This is a family. We're not alone. We're a part of something bigger, bigger than just our individual needs and desires, bigger than just our own families. In fact, in fact, we are members of the universal worldwide body of Jesus Christ. And we are each of us individual strands that are interwoven with the other members of that same body, each strand relying on the other for strength, each strand interdependent on the other strands to fulfill the bigger purpose, the bigger picture, the bigger plan. And we are the church. 
And when people look inside, they should see a tightly woven community of brothers and sisters who embrace their dependence on God and on each other, which is completely counter to the culture around us. But if times do become difficult in this nation, the culture around us won't have the answers that people need. I'm telling you, they will look to the church because that is exactly what has happened throughout history. Nancy Piercy is one of my favorite scholars, and she's done a whole study on that. It's it's tremendous. When times are hard, historically, people turn to the church. Why? Because when times are hard, people are humbled. When their individualism and independence fails them and secular culture around them abandons them, they will look for a community that they can depend on. And we're supposed to be that community. So if, if dark times do come, it's not, a, it's not a disaster. Not for us. For us, it's an opportunity to shine that much brighter. Because we are the church. And our God is in control. Let's pray.